Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Andrea Posey, a partner at Cooper's. We will be discussing leveraging punitive damages to build cases and drive a wedge between the carrier and the insured. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals, trial, co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome back to the show, Andrea. Hi, Miles. Thank you for having me. We've had a number of cases recently where punitive damages have become a real leverage point and thought that it might be nice to hear from you kind of some of the strategies that were employed in terms of identifying punitive damages where some others might not have necessarily turned them into punitive damages and how those were able to be used in the case to be able to get the best result for the client. Yes, I would say start thinking about it early in the case. You may not have the information at the time that you're putting a complaint together. And it really depends on the type of case. If it's a product, you can always go on to the United States Consumer Protection and do like a FOIA request to try to get that information. But you're not always going to have that early on in a case. So start thinking about it in discovery. And in discovery, if it's like a auto accident that involves a driver of a semi-truck, there will always be usually another piece to the traffic collision report where they come in and do a further examination of the truck company, the driver, and then you can start looking into past crashes, things of that nature. You're looking for a pattern of behavior that takes it out of negligence, but more to a reckless disregard for safety. So kind of be keeping it in your mind early on as you're doing discovery and building your case. I want to break down a little bit of what you just said in terms of the FOIA request. And I know that a lot of people probably are familiar with what that might be, but in terms of gathering information, do you sometimes use tools that are available through the government, either through the Sunshine Act or through the Federal Information Act to get information, in essence, free discovery? Yes, you can do, like you mentioned, you can do a FOIA request if it's through the federal government. Each state entity will have their own way to get the information, whether you go on to the police department or you can get information from them without having to actually be in the case yet. And you can request information that's available to the public to start building your case even before you file. What types of things are you looking for on the product side to help build the foundation where one can say move to amend for punitive damages? On the product side, I'm looking for a history. The most important is notice. You want to know when the company first found out that their product may be defective. So whether it's a battery, whether it's a part on a bicycle, chances are this wasn't a one-off. You want to know when they first found out that somebody was being injured and how many times they found out and how much time went by from when they first found out that somebody was being injured to when your client was injured. All of those things are important to build that history against the defendant. We're rabbit holing a little bit, but it's probably worthwhile. Isn't all that information just a couple clicks away? If you go to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, you'll see that there's a recall and, and all the information that you need will be right there because it's all 
publicly available and no, you're shaking your head. No, no, no. you would think so. And it's very time consuming. It's not easy to gather. I would say if you do a FOIA request to some big companies or big entities, it will take months and months to get that information. And big companies spend a lot of time and energy trying to hide that information. So it does take some digging. And so you do want to start early, but it's out there and you can find it. When you say hide that information, do you mean that the CPSC is having communications with the company after you've made your request about what's going to come out and what's not? Yes, that does happen. Fascinating. Yes. Once you get that information from, say, a FOIA request, do you get that before you file the complaint or do you sometimes get that information later on in terms of amending? Sometimes later on. In fact, I had it take so long in a battery case that we were getting close to trial before I finally got the information. It took me nearly a year with constant follow-up to them. If you can get it ahead of time, great. But it's a high standard, and at the pleading stage, it might be difficult to survive a motion to strike. So if, if you can't do it initially, then you want to do it as soon after you discover the information, go in and request to the court for leave to amend. There's a chance that you could reach out to defense counsel and see if they will stipulate to it. But usually once you tell them that you're going to be adding punitive damages, they tell you no and you have to seek leave of court, which you will usually get. We're hearing about the product side. I think I also heard you talk a little bit about commercial drivers, for example. And in a recent case that went to trial, there was a trucking company where their commercial driver had a questionable history. Yes, Was that something that you knew at the outset or is that something that you learned through the course of discovery in the case? That was something we learned during discovery, yes. And it's really fascinating because with the Department of Transportation and all of the state agencies, whenever there's crashes involved, there's a lot of regulations for trucking companies, the carriers, for the drivers. So a lot of that information is documented. But we got lucky with just the defendant's deposition that revealed some prior crashes. Granted, they weren't all disclosed, but that definitely got us thinking about the history of this driver and the experience of this driver. It wasn't just the number of crashes. It was more the trucking company's response to the crashes and the driving history. So, you know, all of that information, we just kept uncovering more and more as we dug into the case that made for a great amending the not only the, the complaint, but heading into trial. And I think that's an area where some people might not think of amending for punitives. You know, a commercial driver is one prior crash enough, three prior crashes enough, what constitutes a crash? And I know a lot of these actually came up as issues in the case. Is property damage only a crash as far as a trucking company is concerned? And it's obviously not a bright line test, but at what point did you determine this is enough where we should probably be thinking about I think for me, it was probably when we got to the third crash. And, you know, granted, it cannot be easy to maneuver a large, you know, 30 to 50,000 pound vehicle. So I I can understand that there would be little property damage issues here or there. But when you start injuring people, that calls for some sort of change, whether it's further training, it's definitely an evaluation of that driver, and it's the motor carrier's job to do that. So once I started to see that people were being injured, that's when I started to get concerned. But I was even more concerned by the motor carrier's response to these crashes. And that's where, to me, it took the shift from being just negligent 
to being reckless and not having the community's safety as your number one priority, thinking about your business instead. That's two different areas. So the product liability side, prior crash side. What about drivers who are medicated or intoxicated in some fashion? Is that another area that people should be evaluating? Yes, I would say intoxication for sure. That's kind of an an easy way to amend and add for punitives because that shows reckless disregard for safety. Another one in a case that I have would be a dog attack. A owner who has prior knowledge of dangerous propensities for this dog, prior attacks on other dogs, prior attacks on other people, you know, things that give that person notice that this is not safe and I need to take action. And when it's they don't take action and further injuries occur, that's when I think it makes the shift into punitive. I think one of the things that people worry about when they've got a case where there's insurance coverage is that delicate dance between punitive damages and the fact that that's not covered by insurance and the fact that there is insurance and and you want to maintain that coverage. Whether it's the dog case, the trucking case, how do you address that in terms of the negotiation and what leverage do punitive damages provide? So that is where it gets interesting and fun because as you mentioned, most insurance policies are not going to cover for punitive damages. So in a situation where you can add punitive damages to it, then it kind of pins the insured against the insurance company because the insurance company has a duty to the insured to not only defend them, but to resolve the policy within the policy limits if it's reasonable to do so. But if punitive damages are not going to be covered by the policy, then that means that that is going to be covered by the insured the individual outside of that. So the individual is going to want to go to their insurance company and say, hey, you need to settle this within the policy so I'm not stuck having to pay this as an excess judgment. So it creates kind of a wedge between the two and puts more pressure on, and especially if you're trying to settle the case within the policy limit and you add punitive damages, it makes them take a real hard look at the case and consider whether they should settle for the policy. As you've done that, do you reach out in certain ways to the carrier. And I'm thinking through my words very carefully in terms of the communication that one might be sending out. Do you send letters directed directly to the insured explaining why the insurance company does not have their best interest at heart? We do. We send it to them, care of the insurance company, but we know that they'll show it to them and let them know that they don't and that they should seek personal counsel. The insurance company is also supposed to provide Kumis counsel, what's called Kumis counsel, if they find that there could be a potential conflict. In my eyes, that's a potential conflict. But we encourage them to seek counsel to talk to that's outside of the insurance company. Because as you mentioned, at that point, the insurance company may not have their best interest at heart and may be exposing them to an excess judgment that then they're going to have to pay after trial. One of the things that I've found very interesting is the Cumis Council rule seems so straightforward. And I don't know of any punitive damage case I've been involved in where the carrier has said, oh, yes, our interests aren't aligned. We're going to pony up the money for your own independent counsel. It's almost always leaving the insured out to dry yep. or the insured finds private counsel and somehow we end up getting wind that there's private counsel. Yep. I've never seen it happen either. <laughs> 
the ability to work with that that personal counsel, private counsel, it can make a big difference, though, if one can actually get through to that person. Yep. Have you had cases where you found yourself able to communicate with the personal counsel as opposed to having to deal with the insurance defense counsel? Not yet. I have not. No, like you said, most of the time they kind of leave their insured out to dry. And, you know, and then we have a an interesting decision to make when we actually get to trial, because on the one hand, we don't necessarily want a punitive damage award for a client because not only is that taxed, but it may be difficult to recover. So sometimes while it adds a lot of pressure on the other side and increases the value of the case, we may want to ask the court to kind of abandon making it an official punitive damage and instead award the money to our client as opposed to punishing the defendant. So it's great to have it in the case the whole time, but depending on the case, it's kind of a strategy move when it comes to trial, how we actually let it play out. And I think it's probably worthwhile sharing recent experience in terms of what the jury did with punitive damages because... I felt that was a powerful learning lesson. And maybe to set the stage, let people know a little bit about what happened. This is the commercial trucking case? Yes, this is the commercial trucking case. So we amended our complaint to add for punitive damages because the driver in that case had had multiple crashes before ours, one of which was a few months prior running over a pedestrian in San Francisco. And while all of that is horrible, we were particularly appalled with the trucking company and the motor carrier's response to each of these crashes. No additional training, no time off, nothing like that. Just continue to put the driver back out on the road. So we added punitive damages in and kept the case going. We kept them in through trial. And it actually really added to the value of our case when it came to trial because the jury found that the conduct of the motor carrier was reckless and that they disregarded the safety of the public. And it added to the value of our case because they wanted to punish the motor carrier for the conduct of the driver. All of that is true. I think the piece that I had never really considered was when we got a good verdict in phase one, that the judge had done such a good job of not letting the potential for a phase two be known to the jury that they didn't even contemplate that there was going to be a phase two. And their way of addressing this as we talked to the jurors after phase two was they didn't see a spot where they were supposed to add the money. So they just added the money to the non-economic damages. That was a problem. And you're right. It was a fine line due if the court were to tell them that if you find for punitive damages, there's going to be a second phase. Would the jury then think, well, we want to get out of here. We've already been here for a month. We're not going to, we don't want to sit through a second phase. But if you don't tell them and they're just looking at a form where they find for punitive damages, but there's not a spot to put that number yet, then they just kind of figure that they would roll it into, you know, the compensatory damages. So when we got to the second phase, they were thinking, we've already done this. Why are we back again? So it did create some confusion. And I'm not sure the best way, I guess it kind of come down to the judge and how the judge wants to present it. Because we had all the instructions in there, but I could see back in the room how it got confusing to them because they were ready to to punish the defendant. And this goes back to something that I remember hearing from, there was a fantastic jury consultant, a woman named Karen Jo Coonan, who passed away recently. And 
every time we talked about the importance of jury instructions, she would talk about the interviews that she did with jurors, both in focus groups and post-trial, where those things, yeah, you know, we looked at those, but we talked about what actually happened there. And, and the takeaway is, we think the instructions are so important and they arm the jurors and you tell them how to use it. And really, it's a lot about emotion and interpretation of the evidence through their lens that they've picked up early in the case, not the instructions. And they really felt like they were doing great by us. They were giving us everything we asked for. They wanted to really make a point to show that they were appalled by the conduct of the trucking company. They just didn't understand why they were there for a second time. So, you know, it definitely was some confusion. But I think at the end of the day, they they gave us a good award and they, they did their job. They did do their job. And the nice thing is we were able to resolve it without having to deal with a motion for new trial and juror misconduct issues. So I think justice was achieved. It was just that learning moment of, oh, we need to be careful in this circumstance to make sure that we don't end up in a situation where we might have to retry a case because we didn't expect the jury to do something like that. Yep, absolutely. So taking it a step back to the letter that one writes to the insured about the settlement, we're looking to try and resolve this case. We're after the insurance money, not your money. How does one deal with the negotiation with the carrier if if punitive damages are part of the discussion? I think that, you know, as I mentioned, it really seems to increase the value of it. It's a really good tool when you're trying to get the entire policy in a policy limits case. And you can work that into the settlement, but it puts pressure on the carrier and, you know, we'll bring up bad faith that not resolving the case within the policy is bad faith. That's their obligation to their insured. We'll really put pressure on them to get a policy limit out of them before trial. I think the other area where being creative and trying to build the punitive damage case is important is when the liability is straightforward, because that's where you start seeing the defense counsel, wise defense counsel will oftentimes embrace a liability case. Hey, we recognize it's our fault. What happened was terrible. We just have a little bit of a disagreement over the value of what Mr. Smith is asking for. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they're the reasonable person in the room. They've taken the piss off factor of their bad behavior out of the conversation. And the way to keep that in is through being creative with punitive damages, making sure that while liability may not be an issue, you still are able to get those bad facts in a way where now the defense counsel is going back and saying, hey, uh, we may get an angry jury and an angry jury is the type of jury that gives out big numbers. It's also something to keep in mind when your defendant is a big company, because if you go to trial on that case and you get a big award against them, you're kind of setting a precedent going forward because then any injury, similar cases with similar injuries that occur after that, they're going to be noticing your case and pointing to the punitive damages. And, you know, big company does not want that kind of award out there for the world to see kind of setting a precedent going forward. As you've built these cases, as you've made considerations about how to negotiate in these cases, are there other pieces that you think are important for people to know in terms of how to leverage them for discussion? I would say just be thinking about it early. You never know when a case can take a turn 
where punitive damages can really increase the value of your case. Sometimes it involves bringing an expert in that may see things that we don't see, particularly when it involves a product. And it's fascinating and it opens the door to things in discovery that you may not otherwise be able to get. Certain information, digging a little deeper, things like that. Once you add punitive damage into it, you have a higher burden of proof. So you can usually have more leeway to ask the deeper questions and to probe into into deeper areas. One other area as we kind of circle around the various types of cases where this might come up as people have gotten more and more frustrated with driving, with traffic and everything else, there are more and more road rage incidents where what starts out potentially as a negligence event, a a fender bender, somebody cutting somebody else off, then escalates into brutality. And in those escalation cases, there's the ability to make a claim as an intentional tort claim. And at the same time, you need to get the money. And while it might be nice to have an intentional tort claim against somebody if they've got insurance, that's really where you're most likely to get the money from. Have you seen cases either that you've worked on directly or, or within the firm where one has been able to take what is in essence a road rage incident and plead it both as negligence, so there's coverage, and an intentional tort and use the friction point between the two to be able to secure a good insurance settlement for a client? Yes, actually, we have a couple cases. I have one, interestingly, and it's great because it adds the pressure to get the insurance company to pay the policy, but it doesn't have to be much from the defendant themselves. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it would make a lot of sense to do your homework on the defendant, do asset search, things of that nature. But sometimes, whether it's a dollar, whether it's 20000 whether it's hundreds of thousands, sometimes it's just the point of them coming out of pocket for their conduct. Because I think a lot of the times our clients feel like if the insurance company pays, the defendant gets a pass. And that just out of principle doesn't sit well with them. So like I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that the monetary number has to be high. It's just the contribution from the defendant that I think it sits well and is that added bit that just makes our clients really happy at the end of the day. The dollar piece is one that makes me smile. Yeah. A, a reference to a recent case where fine, we'll take the insurance money, but and you have to pay because that is an acknowledgement that what you did is wrong. Yep. And that just makes our client so much happier, which is what we want at the end of the day. It's not necessarily the amount of money. It's the good outcome and their happiness. Anything else? If you were sitting down with somebody who is evaluating a case where there may be a punitive damage element, anything else that you would want to share with them in terms of the negotiation, the strategy, the posturing for trial in order to achieve the best outcome? I would just say start early. Keep it in the back of your mind and building up the case. It's a great pressure point. It's fascinating to add to the case. And I think it's fun to add to it. So just be thinking about it. It's not for every case, but you'd be surprised sometimes you turn a corner and there's a lot more to uncover. The other piece that I will reinforce, given what you said about it taking almost a year to get information from the CPSC, is on the starter early side, if you want that information in your case to reach out to them and keep the pressure on to get that information early on. And also with, if you get a case that involves a trucking company 
any crash that involves a tractor trailer, semi-trailer, make sure when you're requesting the traffic collision report that you get the extra report for examination of the truck itself and do your background into the trucking company. Because a lot of times the actually trucking company may have a broker and there's insurance there. So there's always extra information than just the traffic collision report. And it may take time to get that. So make sure that you don't stop at the traffic collision report if it involves a motor carrier. And trucking is its own unique, interesting, lots of twists and turns in terms of how to prosecute one of those cases. It is. And I'm fascinated by it. So the more cases I get for it, it's kind of becoming a little niche, I think, for me. I, I enjoy it. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on how you have handled cases with punitive damage elements. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.